GI Nurses Connect is an initiative of core to ed This podcast is supported by an educational grant from Bayer. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' organisation or the rest of the GI Nurses Connect group. For experts' disclosures on conflict of interest, please go to oncology on core2ed.com. Hello and welcome to this podcast on flexible dosing of oral treatments in metastatic colorectal cancer. I'm Sven Keersmaker and I'm a registered nurse and work as a study coordinator at Antwerp University Hospital in Belgium. And I'm also a member of GI Nurses Connect. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Gerald Prager, who is a medical oncologist and associate professor at the Medical University of Vienna and also a member of our physician partner group GI Connect. Thanks for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you, Sven. It's my pleasure to be here. So, Gerald, we are focusing our discussion today on flexible dosing of oral treatments in metastatic colorectal cancer. Perhaps you can start off by taking us through the oral treatment options for these patients and the advantages of these over other therapies. So there are several advantages when it comes to oral formulations of active drugs compared to IV treatment. Especially in the time of the pandemic, oral drugs, of course, can be taken at home by the patients, so they do not have to come in on a regular basis to the day clinic to get their chemotherapy treatment. It is also inconvenient for the patients as they are more flexible for traveling or whatsoever they for daily life activities, and this is important. So let me first start with capsidabine. Capsidabine is an oral formulation of a fluoropyrimidine, and we have it in use since uh, more than 15 years now in the treatment for metastatic colorectal cancer. Capsidabine is a standard use in the adjuvant setting, especially in stage 2 uh, colorectal cancer, but it's also used in the metastatic setting, most likely in combinations, either in first line with bevacizumab uh, for elderly or frail patients, or as a maintenance treatment. So when we de-escalate uh, more aggressive chemo combinations in first line and then eventually step down by the aggressiveness, we use capsidabine in combination with an antibody. We have learned to handle adverse events of capsidabine, which are uh, most likely GI toxicity like diarrhea, stomatitis, but this drug might also cause hand food syndrome uh, which is uh, sometimes, if it's high grade, a hurdle for patients. And so uh, we have uh, learned to react on this, so proactively by hand creams, but also reactively by stepping down with the dosage when it's uh, necessary. When we go to a later line of treatment, uh, we have two oral drugs available after failure of IV treatment options. One of these drugs is regorafenib. Regorafenib is a totally different drug because regorafenib is a multi-kinase inhibitor. So this means we are interacting not only with the metabolism of the cancer cells, but also with the tumor microenvironment. Regorafenib is interacting with the immune response. It's interacting with angiogenesis by blocking the angiogenesis, so the blood vessel supply of the tumor cells, but it's also interacting with the tumor cell biology itself. Regorafenib is normally uh, taken by a three weeks on, one week off regimen. So the patients are taking this drug three weeks in a row and then they have one week off. They have a treatment break. 
Regoravnib can also cause adverse events such as fatigue, GI toxicity, hand foot skin reactions or other skin reactions. We have learned uh, how to handle this drug quite well. The second oral drug in later line of treatment is trifluoridinotiparacil. Trifluoridinotiparacil, as the name is already suggesting, is a drug combinations of two different drugs, which is uh, essentially leading to the active compound trifluoridine to have a longer half-life time. Trifluoridinotiparacil is also an anti-metabolic drug. It is a member of the fluoropyrimidines and the patients are taking this drug in a, let's say, quite uh, sophisticating manner because they're taking five days the drug, two days off, five days the drug and 16 days off. So it's important to educate the patients for the right drug schedule intake. And adverse events of these drugs are more hematotoxic adverse events. So we have to monitor the blood cell count. We have especially to monitor the white blood cell count because low white blood cell count, as you know, might impair the immune response. Especially in the time of the pandemic, it is important that our patients are not on an increased risk for uh, infections. And so the patients, although it's an oil drug, have to do blood cell monitoring on a regular basis. Thanks for that, Gerald. So you have just mentioned some of the side effects associated with these treatments. We need to balance extended survival with the patient's quality of life, so it's important for us to convey potential side effects to our patients and ensure they understand the strategies we use to manage these. Could you please take us through some of the differences in side effects associated with these treatments? Yeah, sure, Sven. So let me first start with regorafenib. Regorafenib is a totally different drug than we are used to have from chemotherapy. It's a multikinase inhibitor, and we know it from other diseases that multikinase inhibitors have a different adverse events when compared to chemotherapeutic agencies. So let me first start with all the drugs which are targeting angiogenesis. Uh, they have as an adverse events the potential risk of an increase in blood pressure. So we have to make sure that our patients are monitoring the blood pressure and eventually taking action by taking antihypertensive drugs. A second adverse event which regorafenib might cause is a GI toxicity. So for instance, diarrhea. So this is not an infectious diarrhea. Uh, so we can handle it by prescribing loperamide to our patients so that they can handle the diarrhea. Other adverse events of kinase inhibitors might be skin reactions. And we know from regorafenib that regorafenib can cause hand food skin reactions. And they look like that patients might get blisters wherever they have a hypercarotic uh, lesions on their hand or feet. So we want to make sure that these hypercarotic lesions, the patients get rid of before they start treatment with regorafenib. So we proactively send our patients to the pedicure and with the pedicure, they have to remove the hypercarotic lesions. And this is markedly reducing the risk for the blister formation. And we do it before patients start with regorafenib treatment. Then the patient can uh, use a special hand and creams, especially with urea-based uh, creams so that the hypercarotic lesions uh, get removed. Uh, so this is typical for the adverse events. 
Foregorafenib. Triflotipiracil is a um, drug which is quite comparable to other fluoropyrimidines. So it belongs to the family of capsitabine, the IV5FU, but also to other drugs of the fluoropyrimidine family like S1. And these drugs might cause hematotoxicity. Hematotoxicity normally can be easily handled by oncologists, so we just have to monitor the blood cell count, but we have to make sure that we detect the low blood cell count because patients are not feeling a low level of uh, leukocytes or low level of uh, thrombocytes, of platelets. And so it is important that we ask the patients on a regular basis uh, to go to the doctor or to go to the laboratory to do a blood cell count testing and that we take actions before high-grade adverse events emerge. So this is something where, especially in the time of the pandemic, uh, we are uh, very open to prescribe proactively GCSF, which is a colony-stimulating factor applied uh, subcutaneously to our patients to bring up or to boost the white blood cell count and prevent low white blood cell levels. And then finally, with the capsidabine, uh, as I mentioned before, capsidabine also prolongs to the fluoropyrimidines and it uh, not only can cause low blood cell count, but in addition can also cause hand-foot syndrome which is different to the hand-foot skin reaction, which is caused by regorafenib. So it's normally no blister formation, but in rare cases, uh, hand and feet can get swollen, and this might be very painful, and we have to educate the patients to stop capsidabine uh, intake when this kind of high-grade adverse event emerges. And it's also important that uh, patients on capsidabine are using hand-foot creams, especially on a fatty base uh, level, and they uh, use these creams on a regular base because the skin might get uh, very dry and then uh, their injuries can occur. Thanks, Gerald. So there are various treatments that we can prescribe to help manage the side effects that you've just discussed. But actually, one important way to improve tolerability and compliance with these medications is to employ flexible dosing of the treatments. Being flexible with the dose in response to the side effects can help the patient stay on treatment for as long as possible. Can you explain to us the approach you take to flexible dosing for these treatments and the data to support this approach? Thank you, Sven. I think this is a really important question. Especially when it comes to regorafenib, we have learned that most of potentially adverse events emerges within the first one or two cycles of treatment. And especially in the time of the pandemic, it is important that the patient can manage adverse events at home and they do not have to come in when adverse events emerges. So we need to prevent adverse events. So one strategy for regorafenib, for instance, is flexible dosing. What does it mean, flexible dosing? Within prospective clinical trials, we have learned that in the first cycle of treatment with regorafenib, you start with an escalating regimen. So in the first week of the three weeks treatment schedule, the patients are starting with 80 milligrams per day, which is two pills per day. In the second week, they go up to three pills per day. And in the third week, they go for full treatment in case there are no high-grade adverse events, which are four pills per day. So it is important with this escalating regimen 
that we have learned that there are significantly lower probability of high-grade adverse events, so the tolerability is better. And, and this is very important, it's more efficient. In the REDOS trial, this was the name of uh, this prospective clinical trial, we have learned that more patients are going to cycle number three when they do the escalating regimen when compared to the conventional dosing. So it is safe and efficient to start the first cycle of treatment with a lower dose. With other clinical trials, this was confirmed with a different dosing schedule. The rearranged study has also shown that it is safe and efficient to start with a lower dose in the first cycle and you can eventually uh, escalate to the uh, full dosing in cycle two and three. Of course, if patients are uh, suffering from adverse events, high-grade adverse events, you do not further escalating the dosage. So you can find the individual dose for your patients if you start with a lower dose, but rapidly escalate to the individual dose the patient is tolerating. So with this escalating strategy, we have learned to use regorafenib in a safe and efficient way. So when it comes to trifluorantiparacil, uh, trifluorantiparacil is, as I mentioned before, a cytotoxic drug, but we normally start with the full dosage of 35 milligrams per square meter body surface area twice a day. And we do it the different way. We would de-escalate in case of high-grade adverse events or dose delays uh, if the blood cell count on day one of the next cycle is not above uh, the threshold. So we have more a de-escalating strategy in this case. And as I was mentioning before, we are more open to use GCSF as triflantiparacil is a cytotoxic agent. Capsitabine as a monotherapy is normally recommended in the use of 2,500 milligrams per square meter, split it up for two dosage uh, per day, day one to 14 in a, a three week scale. However, normally most of uh, the experts in most uh, Western centers are using this drug with 2,000 milligrams per square meter. So we have a bit lower dosage because we have learned it's more safe to do so and it seems to have a comparable efficiency. However, if there are adverse events, hybrid adverse events, we eventually have to step down in the dosage and go to 70% of the individual dose. And a second dose level for de-escalation would be 50% of the standard dosage. It is also important that there is the recommendation that you go for a DPYD testing before you start capsidabine. Because we know that uh, patients uh, who have a germline DPYD deficiency might suffer from high-grade toxicity, which can eventually become dangerous when it goes to aplasure and uh, neutropene fever. So you see the toxicity profile is quite different, but if you take care of this, you might handle this toxicity or you can proactively prevent high-grade toxicities. So Sven, now I have a question for you. We have already mentioned the advantages of these oral treatments, but a potential disadvantage is that adherence may be reduced to the fact that the oral drugs are self-administered. Nurses have a very important role to play here in terms of ensuring the patient understands the potential adverse events 
that they may experience and the importance of reporting these to their healthcare team so that we can advise the most appropriate strategy for managing them. Perhaps you, Sven, can tell us how you follow up the patients and ensure proactive reporting of adverse events by your patients. Indeed, Gerald, as a nurse, we play an important role in the follow-up of patients undergoing oral therapy. With IV chemo, you see the patients on a regular basis in the hospital. With oral therapy, this is much less. As doctors and nurses, we are therefore less likely to receive information about the condition of our patient. It's important to closely monitor a patient. By controlling side effects, patients can stay on their optimal treatment dose for longer. In addition, serious side effects can also affect the patient's quality of life. After the information about the treatment has been given by the doctor, we find it important to repeat it for the patient. We check whether the patient has understood everything and whether there are any questions. We plan a telephone follow-up approximately one week after the start of the treatment. We here be informed the physician how the patient is doing, whether there are any complaints and whether he is taking the medication correctly. In case of mild complaints, we give advice to our patient and in case of serious complaints, we contact the attending physician. Then we advise the patient in consultation with the physician. We also do this follow-up two weeks and four weeks after the start of the treatment. After that, follow-up takes place every four weeks, unless the patient has to be in the hospital. Patients always receive our contact details so that they can contact us with questions or if they have complaints. We also experience that as a nurse we are easily accessible for patients. Many patients will be less likely to report side effects to the doctor. They are often afraid that the report will ensure that the treatment will be stopped, which is of course not always the case. In addition, we play a key role as a nurse among the other members of the multidisciplinary team. We can always refer patients to the right employee. If they have nutritional problems, we send them to the dietitian. If they have psychological problems, to a psychologist, etc. Usually, this referral is only made after consultation in the multidisciplinary team. In our hospital, we also use an application online that patients can download on their own smartphone. They will then receive a notification when they should take their medication and then they have the option to report parameters and any side effects. Depending on the severity of the side effects, advice is given by the application in case of a mild side effect and in the event of a serious side effect, an email will be sent to the nurse and to the oncologist. Then they will contact patients for further information. We have been using this application for several years and patients are very satisfied with it. They have the feeling that they can always report their complaints and that follow-up is ensured. Moreover, they think it's positive that they receive a reminder when they have to take their medication correctly as well as the correct dose. As you highlighted, Gerald, we can instruct the patients to take a certain dose of their oral medication at home, but ultimately we have to trust that they take it as instructed. There is a risk, of course, that if patients are struggling with side effects, that they might be stopped the treatment temporarily, but not report this to their healthcare team. I'm curious whether there is any other way we can check patients' compliance, for example, through blood tests? <laughs> yes, when you're absolutely right. Uh, especially when it comes to capsaicin, we can look at the blood cell count and the red blood cell count. And normally on especially long intake of capsaicin, what we observe is that the mean corpuscular volume, so the MCV level, is increasing. So capsaicin is leading to a macrocytosis 
And so we can look at this and we know whether the patient is compliant or not. But you were absolutely right. I think it's very important also to hand out a patient diaries where they can fill in adverse events and of course uh, that they have taken the oral drug. It is important uh, also on our side, the informed consenting that the patient get confident with the oral drug treatment. And in my experience, it is very important to take the time in patient education as the attachment to the treatment is much higher than if you just prescribe a drug. So I think it's extremely important, the interaction of the nurses uh, with the patients to follow up the compliance. Okay, thank you, Gerald. We've had a great discussion today. Perhaps you could summarize the key points for our listeners? Sure. So I think it is important that in the year 2022, we have oral drugs available for our patients in the treatment of metastatic colorectal cancer. It's convenient for the patients. They can take the drugs at home. It is also safe for the patients because they do not have to come in that often on day clinics in the time of the pandemic. However, it is important for us to find an individual dose for the patients. And we have learned within the last months by prospective clinical trials that it is safe so to start with an escalating regimen when it comes to regorafenib and to do a blood cell monitoring when it comes to cytotoxic drug like capcitabine or trifluentipyrosil. It is also extremely important that nurses have a tight interactions with our patients when on treatment with oral drugs. And so I can only express how much I appreciate the good collaborations between doctors and nurses on this matter. Well, thanks again, Gerald, and thanks to our listeners. We hope you have found our discussion useful. Thank you very much, Sven. Thank you very much to all listeners. This GI Nurses Connect podcast was brought to you by Courtoed Independent Medical Education. For more information, please visit courtoed.com and select Oncology.